to the podcast from the Temple. I'm Rabbi Peter Berg. And I'm Rabbi Lauren filson Lapidus. This episode is brought to you by the Temple, Atlanta's oldest and youngest synagogue. Well, Happy New Year, Peter. Happy New Year, and then most importantly, a healthy New Year to you and to all of our listeners. It's interesting. I was just talking with my sister about how New Year's was very uneventful. I mean, we were with family after taking some rapid tests, um, but... So I said to my kids when they said, are we staying up for midnight? I said, well, it's midnight somewhere. And I don't know, the switch from 2021 to 22 did not feel that, that momentous. No, it it is, uh, we're, we're pushing three years. That is one year at this point. Crazy. I also think that even under normal circumstances, I think if you really lean into Rosh Hashanah, secular New Year's is just way less fun. I mean, if I could drink champagne any day, I'm not saying I do, but I could. <laughs> but, you know, uh, what's so yeah. special about December 31st? You're right. Other than um, the volume of work for most people being a little quieter. That's true. I'm sure somebody's going to email us and be like, it's my birthday. That's an important day. Do you uh, do you have any special secular New Year's traditions? We, we don't. We do different things. I mean, uh, this year we, we cooked a nice dinner because what are you going to do? And we, we, yeah, uh, you're not watched, going to a restaurant. <laughs> we are not going to a restaurant. We watched a movie and we, you know, it was, it was pretty chill. We did it just us. Usually we do like board games and, um, because we were visiting family, um, and it, the age spread was two years old through 10 years old. There were a lot of, um, new years, like glasses and beads. And, um, our kids decided to make a ball out of socks and they dropped it from the stairs. Nice. Well, yeah. our, our family game was Matan made a, you know, owns this, uh, this is probably an episode for another time, but owns like a casino grade blackjack table uh, and, and with all the accoutrements like the shuffler and the oh, very everything, nice everything and, and did you play and we played we played family blackjack for a while which was fun I have a fond memory of learning blackjack as a child, pretty much like on a New Year's, like you're describing. And so last year, amidst the pandemic, I got um, a very small set of poker chips because my kids need to practice their math facts. And so if you take out the and and I think also we've talked so much about gambling, they will never go into a casino. (laughs) (laughs) But when you're playing for, for chips that are worth nothing, it was kind of fun. Yeah, just bragging rights. You know, before we hit the record button, we were wondering how we were going to connect this intro into our interview and our topic at hand. But I think we have teed it up perfectly by accident, because just like Blackjack is about playing the odds and learning and, and you know, math and statistics, um, so too is our topic today, which is genetic screening. I don't know. I I, I I tried. This, this <laughs> is like, you, you, people don't realize that there's like a game in rabbinic circles, which is like, um, how can you take a random topic and connect the dots to make get it to where you want to go? And you All have right, done well, it full, you flawlessly. <laughs> flawlessly. That's hey. perfect. Um, yes. All right. That is, so, that is a that is a classic rabbinic transition. It really is. You you have to always know how to pivot back. Um, but yeah. So um, Peter, actually, you were. You were away. I was away. That's right. You were ha- you were at the White House Hanukkah party. I was at the White House Hanukkah party. I missed our recording. Which I guess you have an excuse. I mean, 
for the I did. It was it was you know it was pre Omicron, but it yet it was uh, still COVID, and it was it was very only like you know like like about a hundred people. It was tiny, tiny, and uh, it was in and out. It was like light the Hanukkah, Chag Sameach. See you later. <laughs> but still very cool. Very, very cool. So that's why you were not part of this conversation, but it was with two people who you know very well, Karen Gridside and Jane Mizell. And yes. I'm so excited to be able to share this interview about JScreen. And as you're going to hear, listeners, this is an amazing resource, not just here in Atlanta, but for anyone around the country who is um, interested or in need of these resources. So um, have a listen and enjoy. Enjoy, everyone. I am so excited to be sitting with two women who are such important members of our community um, and who I have personal connections to in, in different ways outside of the conversations um, that, that we're having today. It's so nice to welcome Karen Greenside, the executive director of the JScreen Project, and Dr. Jane Mizell, who is an oncologist and medical director um, for, for the JScreen Cancer Screening Projects. Did I get that right? Yeah, perfect. Okay, woohoo. Um, and, uh, you know, Jane, this is very exciting because you get to um, complete, I think, one of our very few husband wife podcasts. <laughs> you had your husband, Dr. Jonathan Mizell, uh, early on to talk about um, being a moil. And now we have you. This is so yeah. exciting. No, it is very exciting. And he, he loved doing this podcast and I'm very excited to be here today. So thank you mm -hmm. so much for having me. Well, we'll put an audience poll to see who, who does it better. Um, exactly. Exactly. Stoke a little competition. And Karen, you know, your I first met you um, when I reached out in a panic, knowing nothing about J Screen and realizing I needed your services because I was newly pregnant and had not um, didn't know what I didn't know. And so that was uh, eleven years ago. And and now here we are. <laughs> Excited to be here. And you also, I mean, you're you're connected to the Atlanta Jewish community and have been um, been a part of it for a long time, right? I have. So my parents were both born in Atlanta, which is unusual. And uh, I grew up here in the Atlanta Jewish community and um, have been at Emory for since 86 for many years. That's awesome. Um, so I would love actually, if each of you can tell a little bit, um, Karen, you've just alluded a little bit to, to being at Emory for a long time, um, what you do professionally and also just a little bit about you because you're both active um, uh, in the Jewish community outside of the work that you do. Um, so Jane, do you want to start and then Karen will turn it to you? Yeah, that's totally fine. Um, so perfect. So I'm Jane Mizell. Um, and as Lauren said, I have been uh, a member of the temple for a long time. My family, I grew up in Atlanta. My parents were not born here, but they moved here before I was born. So I was born in Atlanta and we joined the temple when I was 10. Um, I was bat mitzvah there, as was my brother and confirmed. Um, and my husband and I were married at the temple uh, in 2008. So we have been, and since we moved back to Atlanta in 2014, um, we've been members and our children have been through the preschool and are now in the religious school program. So it's just been a wonderful part of our our, our family lives. Um, professionally, I uh, went to medical school and did my training in Boston and New York, and then moved back here in 2014 for my first uh, faculty job at Emory. Um, so I'm an oncologist, um, and I treat breast cancer and ovarian cancer, uh, and run a lot of the clinical trials in breast cancer here at Emory, and then have done a lot of work with JScreen in the past few years, which we'll talk more about today as a topic of the podcast. But it's great to be here, and I've loved um, you know, kind of getting to span my professional and personal worlds by talking about genetic testing and screening at the temple and in other 
places as part of the Jewish community here in Atlanta and just raising awareness. So awesome. And Karen, tell us a little bit more about you. So my background is as a genetic, my professional background is as a genetic counselor. So I went to college in Chicago, did my genetic training up in New York. And um, after my first short stint in South Carolina, moved back to Atlanta, which I was excited about um, and, and served as a genetic counselor in a lot of capacities and with uh, prenatal people who were already pregnant with genetic concerns, different specialty disease clinics, did some clinical research and also worked a good bit in the pediatric clinics. And one thing that really motivated me toward the program that I'm working on now, the J-Screen program, is I spent a lot of time in those pediatric genetics clinics talking to parents about genetic problems in their children. Uh, some of those are, are devastating genetic problems where the child was, was not going to survive or, or have severe disability. And when I would know that there was testing available that those parents could have had ahead of time, that would have at least told them that they had a risk going in, where they could have taken action, they could have done things differently, or even they could have been prepared uh, for that child and not gone through this long diagnostic odyssey trying to figure out what was going on. I knew that what I wanted to do is, is work on a program where prevention or knowing ahead of time was possible. And when I had this opportunity to work on this J-Screen program, and I can talk about that in a little bit more detail, I was really excited to not only be able to work on prevention, but also be able to use my background and skills to bring that to the Jewish community where we know they're high risk for genetic diseases and cancer. And um, and when we were able to launch this program back in, in a J-Screen program back in 2013, um, ever since then, I, I've been very excited about working on the prevention side. So tell us, um, let's start with what J-Screen began as, which was a lot of um, that prenatal genetic screening. Um, so tell us what's involved. And, you know, when it started, it was, I think, 18 or 19 diseases. And now it looks so it's expanded so much. So tell us a little bit about what's involved. So the J-Screen program started um, specifically because there was a couple in Atlanta who had a child with a Jewish genetic disease. Uh, called ML4. And a same situation where there was screening available at the time for ML4, but they had done screening through their doctor and ML4 was not on the panel of tests that the doctor had ordered. And they had this child and they really wanted to uh, get information out to the, the Jewish community first starting in Atlanta about the availability of more expanded carrier screening, as we call it, uh, on parents before they had children. Uh, to, to help them have this, again, have this information ahead of time. And so the original program was a pilot in Atlanta that was funded by the Marcus Foundation, Bernie Marcus, um, who, who has been amazing, uh, continuing to fund our, our program and helping us help so many people. Uh, but anyhow, back in that at that time in 2013, we launched a test for 19 diseases that were com more common in the Jewish community. Uh, but but testing was already at that time available for many other diseases. And so we very soon after that um, expanded to other diseases common in the Jewish community, in addition to the non-Jewish community. And that's really important because uh, in the Jewish community, people have heard about Tay-Sachs. You know, there's an increased risk of having a child with Tay-Sachs, but somebody who's not Jewish could also have a child with Tay-Sachs disease. Their risk is lower, but that risk is still there. And likewise, let's say something like uh, cystic fibrosis, where we think of that in the general Caucasian community, but somebody who's Jewish can have a child with Tay-Sachs. And, and so we, we soon realized that because people, a lot of people don't even really know their whole 
ancestry. They don't know. They don't know exactly where their families came from. We know that through doing ancestry testing, and and also um, because there are risks that show up in different places where we wouldn't know, and because they're they're interfaith couples who are having children. That we really needed to do more expanded screening that was relevant to people of any background. So over the years, starting with these 19 Jewish genetic diseases, fast forward to this year, we're offering a panel of 226 diseases that are relevant to people of all backgrounds. About how we do that, this is screening done from home on a little sample of saliva, looking at all of those genetic disease risks. It's amazing. You know, as I alluded to in the start of our conversation, you know, I had done the panel at my OBGYN and it was 10 diseases. And I was like, great, we are good to go. And then I remember the pamphlet on the seats at the high holy days. And I had a panic of, oh my gosh, there's nine more. And, um, and then between my first and second child, you called me, you said, Hey, we're testing for more. Um, and you know, I think it's also worth noting for some who were born, um, to two Jewish parents who may have done some genetic screening a couple decades ago, the technology is better. And so, um, getting a negative result then does not necessarily guarantee that nothing is could be found now as well. Right. 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 We have a lot of people who say, my parents had taste sex testing. I don't want to worry about it. And uh, these are like some of the myths around genetic testing. Yes, because there are tests for so many other diseases available now that are common in Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews and the non-Jewish population. And and that also applies to people who've maybe already had a kid or two, uh, but didn't have this more expanded screening panel before they get pregnant again. It's important that they update their screening. So the likelihood of two people both being carriers for the same thing is already on the small side. But then if two people are carriers for the same disease, they still can have a healthy baby. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, you brought up a point that I should have touched on before. So the diseases that we're looking for, for the most part, are recessive. And what that means is in order for a child to be affected, both parents need to be carriers. They're usually healthy and wouldn't know it. Carriers of that same disease. So how often does that happen? We test a lot of people. And we find a lot of carriers because we're testing for a lot of different things. But only about three or 4% of the time do we find a couple being carriers for the same genetic disease where they actually have a risk. So most of the time we're telling people they're carriers, but we're reassuring that there's not a reproductive risk. So what happens if there is? And this can also apply to X-linked diseases where uh, women are carriers and, and then their sons primarily are at risk. So, but really for any of these risk factors, what are what are we telling people? So we have a carrier couple or a woman who carries an X-linked disease. Are we telling them you shouldn't get married? No. Are we telling them you shouldn't have children together? No. Uh, what can that couple do to maximize their chances for having a healthy child? Well, there are some there are some options that are available that a lot of people don't know about. For example, a couple could use in vitro fertilization, uh, which means that uh, egg is fertilized outside of the body. So eggs from the mom, sperm from the dad, fertilized outside of the body. And genetic testing can be done on those embryos. And then the embryos that don't have that disease can be selected 
for a given pregnancy. Um, and, and those other embryos frozen maybe for subsequent pregnancies. And so that couple then is going into a pregnancy with a, a pregnancy that doesn't have that genetic disease. Um, a, another, and, and then confirmatory testing is done later in the pregnancy. Uh, another thing that can be done is um, uh, maybe a, a couple wants to use a sperm donor, uh, a donor who's not a carrier to help get around that risk or an egg donor who's not a carrier. Uh, so, or the couple may want to go ahead and take their chances, hoping for that 75% and do testing during the pregnancy through amniocentesis or, or chorionic villa sampling uh, to see if the baby's affected and then and then plan accordingly, uh, either, either to continue the pregnancy with that information to prepare for the child's care or maybe making a decision about the pregnancy. So in any case, our, our big push is to get people to do this testing prior to pregnancy. And that way they have all of those options available to them if they are in a situation like that. Knowledge is power. Knowledge and, is you power. Know, I, I will just add as we transition to some of the other things J Screen does, um, for those who are listening, your clergy are are also resources as you're navigating this. Um, you know, to to get information, to process information, you know, at any point in this to to have to make decisions or to think things through, please know that your your clergy are all very supportive of this program and aware that that many couples may need to to talk through things. But it's so exciting and and really helpful helpful. So Jane, Dr. Mizell, um, J-Screen started as a prenatal screening program and does that, but has expanded. So tell us a little bit about um, what happens elsewhere. Sure. So I think, you know, I think Karen did an amazing job talking about some of the risks and the prenatal counseling and screening that we can do to help um, prevent or help couples prepare for the possibility of an inherited genetic disease. Um, you know, in my practice as a breast cancer and ovarian cancer specialist, one of the things that I deal with most commonly in the realm of genetics is this question of inheriting genetic mutations that may predispose to breast or ovarian cancer. Um, and there's lots we can do about that as well, both in terms of cancer prevention, but now also in terms of actually optimizing treatment for cancer for patients who happen to have a breast or ovarian cancer that is caused by a genetic mutation. Um, so BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the two most common genes um, that cause breast cancer and ovarian cancer um, and also tend to be more commonly inherited in Ashkenazi Jews. And so one of the things, you know, five years ago that Karen and I started talking about, or maybe three or four years ago, hard to remember now, I feel like we've been talking about it for a while and it finally materialized into this and, really and project. Also, yeah. COVID, I think our, our yeah. understanding of time has collapsed. So yeah. I agree. I basically <laughs> lost a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. um, but basically this idea that, you know, it used to be that if you, even if you were an Ashkenazi Jew and and you know, we know from population science that Ashkenazi Jews are at higher risk of inheriting one of these genetic mutations. Oftentimes, still insurance was not covering testing for these genetic mutations unless you had a personal or family history of breast or ovarian cancer. Um, but the problem is we know from studies done both in Israel and in the UK that if you do testing based just on family history, you actually miss a lot of BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations potentially in Ashkenazi Jews who may carry those mutations, but not have a family history. Um, and what's important about knowing if you have one of those mutations is that you can then act on it. You either know that you're at higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer and can potentially pursue screening, or some folks will actually pursue prophylactic surgery, um, such as bilateral mastectomies, having both breasts removed for women um, who feel that they're kind of emotionally in, in their lives ready to do that, um, or having their ovaries removed once they get to a certain age. Um, if you want, we can talk more about what some of those guidelines look like a little bit later on in the program. Um, but basically what we said was, you know, we wonder 
whether there would be interest in the Atlanta Jewish community um, if testing were provided to have this testing done for Ashkenazi Jews who don't have a family history. Um, and so through that sort of question that we asked ourselves, we designed this study that we called the Peach Braca study. And this was a study that I think we spoke about at the temple, and I know a lot of members actually ended up enrolling in, um, where if you did not have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, or other related cancers, um, but you did have at least a quarter Ashkenazi Jewish background, um, you were eligible to enroll in this study and have C sequencing of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes done free of charge, um, and then have genetic counseling done via phone or via Zoom um, to kind of understand your results and then move forward. Um, it was not expanded testing at that time. It was just those genes, but then participants had the ability to potentially reflex to more expanded testing if they wanted to. And so we wanted to learn more about, you know, what is the actual likelihood of having a mutation, but also, you know, do people want this kind of testing? Um, how do people like this virtual genetic counseling platform? Um, and how can we sort of optimize this experience for patients? And, you know, uptake, people actually enrolled pretty quickly in this. And it even, even though it ended up rolling out during the time of COVID, it didn't really stop enrollment. People were interested in this. Um, people did want the information um, and generally really liked the way the information was delivered. And I think um, certainly as COVID has come into our lives and seems to be staying here, the ability to do genetic counseling effectively over virtual platforms was also a really helpful thing to learn about and to figure out. Um, so, what did you, yeah. so what did the results look like? Were a lot of people like What's the incidence of of people without family history having the BRCA test, the BRCA gene? So what we knew going in was in the literature, about one in 40 people with Ashkenazi Jewish background uh, have a risk for carrying a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. Um, and but that but in the literature, those all of those people, um, some of those people had family histories of, of breast and ovarian cancer. Some of those people didn't. It was really a mix. And and again, as, as Dr. Mizell was saying, we really wanted to look at a group of people that didn't have a, a family history or, or, or a personal history of cancer. And what just by virtue of the fact that they're Jewish, what was their risk? And in fact, uh, well, a manuscript has been submitted for publication. Uh, but what we found was that about one in 100 people. Uh, with a clean personal and family history, um, still ha had a mutation in one of those genes and were at risk for for the for related cancers. So death, and that's versus a one in five hundred risk in the general population. So still significantly higher uh, than general population risk. And I think you know the other thing that's interesting is that you know for many of these folks who then you know I think it's helpful to get the information that you have that mutation because then you can sort of take stock of what your risk is and then make proactive decisions um, before a cancer is diagnosed. And then for people who didn't have, you know, who had full gene sequencing and knew that, knew that they didn't have any mutations, you know, they felt like they could then move forward in a different way. So as you said before about the reproductive screening, you know, knowledge is power. And I think um, having that information really helps people to move forward. Um, and then through that peach BRCA study then came, you know, sort of expansion of that cancer genetic testing, which Chase Green is now doing um, at a small cost, but has opened up, you know, really to the entire community as something that's available to people who want it. We can talk more about that too. Well, so one question I have, you know, in the same yeah. way, um, when it comes to like the reproductive screening, this idea of if you have it, you have no options. You know, I think that for a lot of people, they assume if you're, if you have a BRCA mutation, um, you need to be like the celebrities and just um, surgery, it's, it's all roads lead to surgery. But it sounds like maybe that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, no, it definitely doesn't have to be the case. I think, you know, a lot has to do with, you know, you know, which, first of all, which mutation you have makes a difference because BRCA1 mutation carriers have a slightly higher risk of breast cancer and a higher risk of ovarian cancer for sure than BRCA2 mutation carriers. Um, 
there is much better screening for breast cancer than for ovarian cancer. So it is reasonable for patients to, instead of choosing to have your breasts removed, to alternate every six months mammograms and breast MRIs. Um, and some women do that um, for a while and then decide to have mastectomies. Some women do that forever. Um, you know, unfortunately, because the risk of breast cancer is pretty high in these mutation carriers, a lot of times those screening tests end up eventually uncovering a cancer. And if they do, um, then surgery is often recommended. Um, but that is definitely a road that people can take. And I talk to a lot of young BRCA mutation carriers who you know, may be thinking about having surgery sometime in the future, but it's a lot of information to get that, that genetic test back and then start to think about you know, removing body parts that you're very emotionally connected to. Um, and for a lot of women who haven't completed childbearing yet and maybe want to breastfeed, it's a very reasonable option to do, you know, close screening and follow up with your physicians and then, you know, kind of fulfill those goals and maybe choose to have surgery down the line. So there are lots of ways to personalize this. And then in terms of ovarian cancer, you know, we do usually recommend for these patients because there's not great ovarian cancer screening methods just yet, um, that patients with BRCA1 gene mutations generally have their ovaries removed by around the age of 40 and BRCA2 by around the age of 50. Um, but that also depends a little bit on sort of like obviously personal goals, but also on family history. If you have a very strong family history of ovarian cancer, we might you know feel more strongly about that recommendation versus if you have a big family with lots of women and no one has uh, ovarian cancer. So I think you know, every every recommendation has to be personalized based on lots of the factors about the patient and their goals. Um, but there are certainly options. And I think, you know, that's what the gene mutation testing gives you. And that's what that knowledge gives you is not necessarily like all roads lead to surgery or lead to one thing, but it gives you information about yourself that you can then use to make informed decisions. So the J screen cancer screening, the peach study was, um, was just for, for a very specific population, but it's expanded. What are you testing for? Who's eligible? What does that look like? Because it sounds important, exciting, anxiety producing. Um, so tell us about it. Yeah. So, uh, and I also wanted to mention a lot of people aren't aware. And even when we headed into the peach study, weren't aware that, that men, you know, can carry these mutations as well, that these are passed down in a dominant way from either mom or dad to either son or daughter. And so, um, you know, we had men coming through the study as well. And, and men who carry one of these mutations do actually have a risk for breast cancer, which people don't realize, and, and also for prostate um, and pancreatic cancer. And of course, women can also be at risk for pancreatic. And so, uh, we, we, you know, we're, we're giving good information. And, and part of our education around the study was that the testing is important for, for men as well. So uh, what are we doing now? So we did a survey as part of the study asking people, you know, if, if we had testing for more cancer susceptibility genes besides BRCA, one and two available, would you, would you have been interested? Really, 90% of people, you know, answered the survey by saying yes. So, so what we did when we decided we were going to launch this program nationally, you know, out after this Atlanta pilot, um, we created a custom panel of 63 cancer susceptibility genes that would cover the common cancers that people would be concerned about, like colorectal or urinary or, or skin cancers, um, also breast, ovarian, prostate, all these cancers. But, but, but multiple genes. So for example, on our panel, there are 20 or so genes that are associated with an increased risk of breast ovarian cancer. So um, anyhow, and all of the genes on the panel, the reason we chose these 63 is that if you test positive for any one of those genes, uh, they're what we call actionable, meaning there's something that you can do to help prevent cancer. Uh, we didn't put genes on the panel where we'd be in a, situa a situation where we'd have to say, yes, you tested positive for a mutation, 
but there's nothing you can really do. So these are all actionable. And and I did want to talk just a minute about our process because you talked about genetic counseling and I'm stepping to the side a little bit. We hadn't talked about this yet. How does our program work? Dr. Mizell was saying, you know, this is everything is done from home. Uh, When we launched the J-Screen program, that was our one of our purposes was to make screening accessible to people across the country. And so the way that it works is people go to our website, jscreen.org. They see information about genetic testing and now the two tests, reproductive, separate from cancer. You can do one or the other or both. Um, You sign up for testing through a registration process. Then uh, a kit is mailed to your house. You spit in a tube that uh, you mail the sample to the lab. The lab is extracting DNA from this small spit sample. They're doing testing. They're reporting results to JScreen. And once those results are ready, our genetic counselors send an email saying your results are ready click here to schedule a genetic counseling appointment with us. That genetic counseling is done via phone or secure video conferencing. So the the entire program you can do from home. You sign up for testing from home, you get education from home, and you do your genetic counseling follow-up from home. Um, Now, if a, a couple's in a situation where they have an increased reproductive risk. Um, Rabbi Lapidus, you were saying, you know, we're telling people you may want to talk to your rabbi, you need to talk to your OBGYN or fertility specialist. We're helping people get to resources. And likewise, for the cancer test, if someone tests positive, I mean, in Atlanta, we're saying, you know, you may want to talk to Dr. Mizell or another oncologist. We, we want to make sure that, that past the genetic counseling, people are getting referred to appropriate resources. That's amazing. Knowledge is power, but it's also really anxiety producing, you know? Um, And I think that, you know, getting this information does have, um, it has implications. You have to, um, you know, insurance implications, potentially um, life-changing implications, potentially also implications for children and extended families. So there's a lot to think about. I'm curious what you would advise people to think about before they register for um, for the cancer screening? Like what are some things that they could think about to really make sure that they're ready and also to feel empowered to do it? Because I think we want to encourage people to, to take advantage of these resources. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you. I think this is a tough, it's a tough thing. And sometimes I think the, the reason why people hesitate, if they hesitate, is that sense of like, I don't want to know what I don't know and not wanting to get that information that might cause them to have to make scary decisions. And I think for me in my practice and you know certainly through my work with this program, I think one of the things that helps is trying to sort of make those decisions less scary. They're like, you know, chances are very high that you do this testing and you come out without any increased risk and you get reassurance. But if you end up testing positive for a mutation that does have some increased risk, then you have choices. You know, it's, as we were talking about before, it's not just all or nothing. Um, and that also JScreen is going to help direct you to the appropriate resource in your community to kind of exercise some of those choices and figure out, you know, what that is. Um, Is it enhanced screening? Is it, you know, surgery? What makes sense for you? Um, So that if you do this testing, it's not like you're just going to have a bomb dropped on you and people are going to walk away. Like we're going to carry you through this until the end. But I think if people are worried about, you know, how they will handle that knowledge, and I think there is a lot of anxiety in this world and particularly now with COVID and everything else, speaking to a clergy member, speaking to, you know, a trusted person in your life or a therapist, if you have one about, you know, whether and when this makes sense for you, because it is stressful information, um, may make sense. I think if for many people, we know more about our family histories now. And I think people talk more openly about cancer diagnoses than they did before. So kind of 
understanding your own baseline risk and how you feel about that may help people with their decision-making. I think the most important piece is just kind of like normalizing the fact that, you know, getting this information, you know, in the future, I envision it as like, it may be kind of like getting your mammogram or getting your pap smear. Like this is just something you do to kind of understand your risk better and help you make decisions going forward. You know, again, for most people, they're going to get reassuring information. Um, but if you get information that tells you you're at higher risk, it's probably better to know that so that you can either find cancer early or take take steps to prevent it. Karen, what do you think? No, I agree. And, and, um, and I, I do think, I do think people are scared. You know, I, th- I think it was even Dr. Mizell who, who said it in this way in the past that, you know, what, what would be scarier, you know, to hear that you have an increased risk for cancer and there's something you can do about it, or to hear that you do have cancer and know that you maybe could have known you know, that there was a risk uh, and, and could have been prevented. So, no, but it, you know, it's, it's a very personal decision. Uh, a couple of things that I would say that people do worry about is uh, confidentiality of their genetic information. And, you know, we, we reassure people that when they come through for genetic testing, you know, we're, our program is based out of Emory University's Department of Human Genetics. And uh, we're following HIPAA guidelines. You know, there are only certain entities like like JScreen and the laboratory that does the testing and your doctor, if you send a copy to your doctor of the report, uh, that have access to your to your uh, health information and, and it's protected within Emory's firewalls. Um, another thing that people are concerned about is what's going to happen to my insurance um, if I do genetic testing. And, and I, you know, I know we have a lot of time, but just, you know, very generally, uh, there are laws. Uh, this is called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act back from 2008 and nine um, that that says that your health insurer, neither your health insurer nor your employer can discriminate against you based on genetic test results, based on genetic information. And so those protections are, are in place for most people. Um, but when you think about life insurance or disability, you know, other types of insurance, uh, there's no legislation in place. And so what we tell people, and this is part of the education process coming into cancer genetic testing, which is really, we wouldn't worry about that so much with reproductive because people aren't uh, don't have symptoms for the most part, but for cancer, uh, we our education video prior to testing and the written information that we give says that if you don't have those other types of policies in place, um, that you may want to get those in place before you do cancer genetic testing. And um, but most people coming through the program do have those policies in place, and um, and and having that information then is not going to take that coverage away or increase your rates. It, it wouldn't change it. Amazing. You've been, I, I could listen to you all day because um, <laughs> you both sound so reassuring and of course knowledgeable. And I, I mean, we should be so proud as a Jewish community and as an Atlanta community of the work you and your teams are doing. I mean, we're a model, it sounds like for, for the country. It is awesome to see how far this program has gone, even in just a few short years. And yeah, you know, the idea that we went from a small, you know, hometown pilot to something that is now, you know, nationally available is, is pretty cool and very exciting. That's awesome. So um, if you have uh, questions, I guess, listeners, you can go to jscreen.org and we have um, that link in the description of this episode. Karen and Jane, thank you so much. Um, this has been amazing. And I hope that for all who are listening, they are reassured. Um, I, I love what, what you said. You know, there's going to be tremendous resources to help guide you and a lot of you know knowledge is power. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us. Thank you. I'm so, so glad that uh, we were able to share this incredible conversation with our listeners. Um, and I'm 
really wish I could have been there in person, but the interview was absolutely incredible. Well done. So much information. I mean, I could yeah. listen to the two of them for hours, but fortunately it's, for our listeners, we did not. <laughs> it is, but it's so important. And, the, you know, the, we we have many different genres of, of interviews and conversations, but this fits into the category of really, really important take, you know, take the time to, to listen to it and, and figure out next steps for yourself and your family. For sure. Well, um, we're back. It's 2022. So uh, you want to share what's happening next week? Yeah, I think, I think we should change the name of, of the podcast to like pivot again, but um, <laughs> we are, we are pivoting once again, because that's what we've done the last couple of years. We were of course, hoping to have our, um, our annual Martin Luther King Jr. Shabbat service in person with our choirs as we always do. It's such a highlight of everything we do at Temple, but we are making the responsible decision uh, to do it virtually because uh, we wanna keep everybody safe during this this Omicron variant. Uh, So that means that we're teeing up now our virtual second annual Martin Luther King Jr. Shabbat service. It's amazing the things that we were so sure we would never have to do again. And yet here we are. But, you know, even though it will be virtual again, there are some things about this year that will be unique and special and exciting. And next week's episode, where we're talking with Cantor Hartman and the other Rabbi Lapidus, we're going to preview some of that. Yeah, but but to suffice it to say as a teaser, there are never before... Uh, released uh, music and videos that nobody has seen or heard before. And you will only see and hear for the first time at our Friday night, Martin Luther King Jr. Shabbat virtual service. And everything, of course, will be preserved so you can watch it then or anytime. I love it. So um, listeners, join us um, for next week's podcast episode that talks about the special music of the MLK service that will warm you up and get you ready for Friday, January 14th, um, our MLK Shabbat service with the Temple and Ebenezer Baptist Church. We have lots of new episodes forthcoming, but as always, we want to hear from you, your ideas and your questions at podcast at the hyphen temple.org. And so this has been another but the first of 2022 episode of the podcast from the temple where we inspire lives and transform our world. take out the and and I think also we've talked so much about gambling they will never go into a casino because <laughs> <I think laughs> <Right. they're not. laughs>